If we could dial up the weather, this would be perfect. This would be exactly what we would dial up on any given day, sunny and cool, perfect, quiet. You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, conversation these days about what's going to happen to retreat centers now that uh, lots of more things are available online where you can stay home. And uh, uh, how many people came to Spirit Rock uh, um, in virtual reality last Thursday night? How many people? Anybody came? There you go. It was nice, wasn't it, Pam? was lovely. Um, I think it's different, though, than being here together, because when, when we're here together, last Thursday night, Jack Cornfield and I uh, had a, an, uh, well, it wasn't impromptu, we knew we were doing it, but it was non-scripted. We had a, we had a one-hour discussion about metta, and uh, about friendliness, about love in our lives, and uh, and we didn't plan what to say. We said, we'll just get there and talk about it and go back and forth. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we were both here a few minutes early and we met upstairs to uh, talk about what we were going to do. And uh, I can't remember who was it that came in. Probably Rachel Uris, who's the uh, uh, development director here came in and said, well, you know, how you doing? Are you prepared for doing this? Uh, not with any concern, but how are you doing? And Jack said, um, well, I'm just thinking, you know, I'm looking forward to teaching this, and I'm thinking, uh, you know, I'm really good at this. I wonder why they invited Sylvia. And I said, you know, f- funny, I said, funny, I was thinking the same thing. Meta is my thing. How come they invited Jack? <laughs> This is my territory. <laughs> and we're both extremely talkative, and we're both Leos, and we both like to take up a lot of space on, online. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we made a pact that we would be very careful about not using up the whole time and using run-on sentences and noticing that the other person was there and passing it back and forth. And we did a good job of it. But we, didn't we do a good job of it? But then it came near the end, and we said, you know, we're just getting started. We could sit another hour. We could have, and we could have sat a whole day and done more exercises in it. Not only because the Dharma is endless. The Dharma, on the one hand, is endless. You could talk about forever. And the compendium of uh, Buddhist literature to talk about and ideas is, is enormous. And you can also do it in a half hour or an hour. I uh, my, my plan for today was to talk about uh, one line that I read yesterday in a book called uh, "Preaching Barking to the Choir. Uh, how many people read this book so far? Isn't it wonderful, Anne? It's the second book uh, by Gregory Boyle. His first one was Tattoos on the Heart. And I started it yesterday and I finished it this morning. It's really great. And he quotes a lot of the same people. We're all passing around the same quotes as Jack said, as this one said, as the other one said. 
And uh, but this is a really this is the important quote. This is a Thich Nhat Hanh quote that Gregory Boyle shares in this book. He says, "Happiness comes only from kindness and compassion." Isn't that a great line? I believe it. I think so. That happiness comes only from kindness and compassion. I mean, we're glad when something happens. You know, someone calls us and says. Um, uh, the 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 dreamers have been given uh, permanent status as American citizens, uh, permanent uh, green cards, and they're on a citizenship track. We'd be glad, but it would be a, a momentary glad. You know, we'd be pleased, happy about it. But uh, the enduring happiness comes from a mind that's attuned to kindness and compassion, no matter what. Not only when we're pleased. And uh, I've been, I was thinking about it all the day yesterday. I was putting together all the things I wanted to talk about. And I was thinking, on the one hand, it's like a summation of the whole that the Buddha taught. Um, there's a, one of the books that the Dalai Lama wrote, or what somebody wrote interviewing the Dalai Lama and then wrote down for him. Uh, the first line of the book is, the purpose of life is to be happy. And I remember reading it originally and I was thinking, wow, that's surprising. I was thinking, given the Dalai Lama's commitment to world peace and Nobel Prize and doing things, that it would say the purpose of life is to serve. But I think that it makes sense. First of all, to serve makes you happy. And to be happy causes you to be able to serve wishing in gladness and in safety. Is that what allows you that the kind of uh, the gladness that comes from serving which is what the whole that, that's a line out of the Metta Sutta you probably recognize it the whole first 12 or 13 lines of that Sutta are um, about ways of behaving yourself well this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, straightforward and contented and easily satisfied, not proud or demanding in nature, not... Um, Something undemanding in nature, what not? Not proud. not proud or demanding in nature, not doing the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. It's not a great thing when you think about it. That's like a summary. It doesn't say, don't do this, 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 this. Don't do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. This would be an unwise thing to do. It would be an unwise thing to do because it would make you unhappy. And it would be self-serving. And when we do self-serving things, we, I do a lot of things. My being, my being, to whatever extent I am kind and thoughtful, I am serving myself because I am giving myself the benefit of um, what the Buddha would have called the bliss of blamelessness. But we'll talk about that all today. It's all very interesting. It's all, it's all about... Uh, it has changed in my mind from how it was 40 years ago when I began to study Dharma and the, the point of practice seemed very much to have some illuminating 
interior experience that would then free my mind from any uh, from troubling habits free my mind from greed or hatred and so it seemed like a really um, a single focus a personal focus I'll do this, I'll have this experience and then my mind will be at ease and the, the focus at that time was not at all about we'll be at ease and it's really shifted in the last 40 years that I've been part of Dharma practice it's for us, it's not for we for me, it's for we at uh, at some point, uh, I don't know when it was that Thich Nhat Hanh said that um, the next Buddha is going to be the Sangha. In the time of, you know, when people talk about in the time of the Buddha, and part of the mythology or folklore about the Buddha is that he wasn't the first Buddha. There were other Buddhas before him. There'll be another Buddha. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh saying the next Buddha is going to be the Sangha, Larry Yang's new book, uh, Awakening Together, makes the point that we don't do it alone. We do it with Sangha, not just as their support, but being, uh, not just that the Sangha supports us, that I think it's nice to come here, it's lovely to come here on a Wednesday, even if we could do this by um, um, online. It's, it's a wonderful thing to come together with other people who have your same um, values. You know, you sit down in a room full of people that you're pretty sure have your same values of wanting peace and kindness in the world. You actually don't know for sure how everybody voted. Speaking of yesterday was a voting day. Because I think that there are people with all kinds of voting persuasions who are wanting to have peace in the world and goodness. Uh, It's not the loudest voice that we hear in public discourse these days. But I really don't think that it's uh, a a partisan good guys and bad guys. Anyway, not to do the whole Dharma talk first. How many people, for how many people is this the first time that you're here? Oh, terrific. What's your name? Zach. Zach, my name is Sylvia. Where do you live, Zach? San Francisco. Ah, and today's the first time you've come to Spirit Rock altogether. That's terrific. How come you came today? I did an IMS retreat recently. I just finished your book. Well, I'm glad they both persuaded you. I haven't been there in a couple of years. They said they did a big renovate and it's all quite new looking. Is that... Who were your teachers? It was um, uh, Alexis Santos, uh, Carol Wilson, and Mark Gunberg. Carol Wilson's been my my friend for many, many years. She and I, for a while, had a daily gratitude practice where we wrote each other a one-line email, sometimes two lines, every single day that was not exchanging like letters, responding to each other. Uh, It was just to tell the other person what I'm grateful for today is, and she would write to me what I'm grateful for today. It lasted a few years, and it was a really good thing, especially a good thing on the days that I was really bummed out about something, because then you really have to work at, I really 
uh, it's hard for me to write this today because X went wrong and Y went wrong and I was so annoyed at so-and-so and this happened bad in a committee meeting and I can't believe it that so-and-so is doing this and that. But I'm really glad and I'm grateful for the fact that you're on the other end of this email and I know that you will love me even if I'm in a grumpy mood. There's a, just a way that if you connect every day with the impulse of gratitude, it works out that way. We did that for a couple of years until she was out of the country for a while. Well, I'm glad you're here, Zach. Who is here else new? What's your name? My name's Where do you live? Oh, that's down south, isn't it? Are you up visiting? or? I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad it's so beautiful. I hope the turkeys come up to visit. We have great... Ah. <laughs> they come. Sometimes they peck at the windows because they don't know that it's not them. Who else is new here? What's your name? My name is Kelly. Where do you live? right here over the hill did you see that whole pack of cyclists coming over the hill weren't they amazing they were all packed in there do you know that I saw one woman there were about 30 people and there was one woman in there that was amazing she just she wasn't at the back either she was right in the middle of them that was great who else has not been here before People are pointing to other people. <laughs> there you are. Chicago. Is it summer there yet? Who else? Yeah. Jeff is making us sound like he knows that island. Is it still one of the most beautiful places on earth? Yeah. Strawberries red through to the core. Strawberries growing along the road that are red all the way through. <laughs> what else? Who else? Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Heidi's going to be here next week. Heidi will be here next week. I am actually in San Francisco all of next week. I'm not going far away. But I'm in San Francisco um, for a week of seeing the Ring Opera. Hmm. <laughs> it's a very big... <laughs> Roberta says, <laughs> it's one of those things that people who like it really like it uh, my friend Verna who died three years ago probably now uh, two three years ago at 99 had been the president of the Marin 
oh, the, the Bay Area Wagner Society, San Francisco Wagner Society, for a number of years when she was in, uh, younger than 99, maybe in her 60s. So, uh, she had been to, I think, 67 complete rings in her life. She went every year to a different place, sometimes twice. She knew everybody. She hadn't been a singer herself. She went to other operas, but she really liked Wagner. And she really liked the ring and the aficionados of the ring. I guess I am one of them. Uh, really like the whole spectacle of the story of what it is. When I, in the, when I, after it happens, I'll talk to you about it again. Uh. <laughs> Because I realize I'm hesitating because the truth is they, it's a, it's a one-week spectacle. It's actually five days and all kinds of lectures in between. There's only four operas in that time, but it's a Tuesday through Sunday with all kinds of lectures and events happening. And it's happening for three weeks, the week of the 11th and the week of the 18th and the week of the 25th. And I am going on the first week and the third week. So that is really a little bit gross in its... <laughs> but my friend Gail Stark and I, who go together to these things all over the world, we calculated that if we waited and went to Berlin or to Lisbon, wherever they're going to do it next year, the airfare would be more than if we went a second time. So we're counting that this will count for not causing us to fly somewhere for a few years. We'll see. Anybody else for whom this is their first time here? By the way, it's about greed, hatred, and delusion. That's the ring. <laughs> and the pitfalls and downfalls of getting mired in that. We've met some people, but we haven't met everybody. Spend the next couple of minutes saying hello to the people next to you and why are you here or where do you live or anything else you want to say. If they haven't been here before, welcome them.
What's your name? Julius. Hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you're here. Hmm? Are you a musician? No, but I, 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 are you? Um, Just for a minute, just for a minute, before we sit quietly, I, I want to do just a moment of uh, um, process, it's called a process moment. Uh, how do you feel after those two minutes? My judgment is that everybody really uh, wakes up. Ace. Oh, there you go. There you go. And you actually met somebody. It's exciting to really meet somebody, you know, not just hire, but really meet somebody, even for a minute, isn't it? The room feels different. Everybody feels a little, I, I, it does to me anyway. You tell me if it's otherwise. I think it's such a simple thing that we feel better in community than alone. And we just have to feel like somebody has said hello to us, or we've really connected with somebody. When we start in here, it's not as if we're all in a muni bus where we could connect with everybody anyway, but it might not be so easy. Here we have at least, this is a, um, uh, a self-selected group. Nobody came here by accident. You can't just <laughs> wander in here because you happen to be on 4th Street or something. This is out of the way to come here, so everybody had to come. So you know already that everybody shares your desire for a world of peace and a life of peace and a, all of that. But it really, for me, it wakes me up. 
people for a long time commented on, you seem to have more airplane stories than anybody because you talk to everybody on airplanes. <laughs> but, you know, I think I, I probably talked as much as I did to people on airplanes because flying by myself different places is a certain amount of stress. You know, you leave your family, you leave your life, you go someplace else. You sit and you talk to somebody else and they tell you on airplanes all kinds of things about themselves that they might not tell anybody else because nobody's going to know about it. And you get yourself, It's like going to a therapist except you don't have to pay them. And you talk out your story and they have some ideas about it and you feel better about it and you hear yourself. You know, I think when I'm with somebody and they, they, as a therapist or as a whatever it is, I don't, uh, I don't so much do therapy now as much as spiritual direction. So that means people aren't getting better when they talk to me. They're just telling me what their spiritual life is and if I can, I'm helping them out with it. But it's, it's something to have somebody else to connect and, f- and see a feedback. I'm telling this to another person. It's not just here. It's he- it's not just here. It's here. And there's another live person who has feelings about this. And you really, one of the big um, messages from Greg Boyle's book, this one and the one before it, is that we wake up when somebody sees us, actually. We come alive when somebody sees us. There's been a lot of baby research about, not even so recently because people well know this now, that uh, the the importance of talking to your baby once it's once it's when it, especially when it's a newborn, that uh, therapists seeing women and babies their babies in clinics would notice the difference between people who held a baby like um, it's even hard to talk about like it's a doll or something that's not quite, and talking to the therapist, than those who are all the time connecting with the baby and talking to it. And I'm sure all of you who had the experience of having a baby know that you talked to it from the beginning. I talked to my dog, for goodness sake. I tell him, relax, I'm opening this can of dog food, I'll be there in a minute, see, this is the kind you really like. Don't you do that? How many people talk to their dog? That. You know, if it's alive, you talk to it. <laughs> huh? When you are talking to them, they don't do it when your back is turned. Yeah. The babies or the dogs? <laughs> no, no, no. no. That, that, that thing of noticing another person because they respond and also we respond. In the, at least in the sense of when I notice other people and listen to them, I'm hearing their story, it really gives me a little vacation from my story, which is always going on all the time, what I didn't do so well, what I have to do, my plight, poor me, this shouldn't have happened. <laughs> my mother-in-law, long of blessed memory, I'd leave a building with her and it would have started to rain and she'd say... Just my luck. It's raining. It's like as if to say the whole cosmos is, is looking for when she personally is leaving a building or not in order, to, in order to rain. It's not all happening because of me or anything to do with me. There's a big world happening out there. And the more I, anybody notices I am part of the world, the more we are, each of us, relieved of the problem of being caught in our own story. That's really the whole story of suffering. So now that we're waked up, we'll sit a little bit. 
one of the things that I was saying when Jack and I were talking last week was um, that all of the instructions for meditation we'll do a meditation bringing your attention up through your parts of your body or we'll do a meditation on where you breath in the belly and in the chest and in the nostrils or we'll do a meditation on this phrase when the breath comes in and this phrase when the breath goes out all of the different techniques of meditation share the goal of soothing the mind while keeping it awake really there are lots of meditation I don't know lots but there's a general category of meditations that soothe the mind with a kind of um, monotonous one-pointed monotonous doesn't mean boring it means one tone one thing over and over and over again which tends to have the effect of soothing the mind quietening down old-time movies a hundred years ago when movies began somebody couldn't sleep they'd get a hypnotist who would have a big watch on a chain and they'd hold it like this and say, watch the watch, tick-tock, tick-tock, and you see somebody's eyelids closing. There are hypnotizing meditations that are just on one thing, in and out. I think, and they do lots of different things. You can really have mouth surgery done or mouth procedures done. You can really so tranquilize the mind that it's almost asleep. Or you can tranquilize the mind and keep it awake. One of my teachers once said to me when I was reporting that I had discovered how to stay with one object so much that I was just sitting in a very blissful haze and that my body didn't hurt, my knees didn't hurt, nothing hurt. And I could sit there for a long time, in, out, in, out, in, out. And I thought he'd really, you know, say that was great. He did. He said, that's great, Sylvia. Now you're supposed to look around and see what's happening. You're not doing this just to sit in a tranquil haze. You're doing this so you can notice what's happening. It's all about noticing what's happening. Not only in me, but in the world and around me and with everything. There were so many books written with the word awakening in the title, awakening the heart. Awakening to the present moment, awakening, awakening, awakening together. But the thing is, what are we going to be awake to? That's a good name of a book. (laughs) So we'll try to do that. We'll try to let the mind be soothed and stay awake. I'd like to suggest that you do any or all of those things. Let's do them all for just a moment or two each, so you'll see. As you sit, feel the breath coming in and out of your body. Feel your whole body sitting where it is, filling with air and letting the air out, filling with the air and letting the air out. You don't have to do anything. The biosphere does it for you along with your diaphragm. Breath goes in, breath goes out.
for a little bit. Notice particularly how the breath feels coming in and out of your nostrils. And then with your attention, feel the breath coming in and out of your, around your ribcage. How your ribcage moves out and in. It's the same breath, just the attention moves. And around your belly. Attention arises around the belly. You feel your belly moves out and in. And you don't do anything. It just happens. That realization that no one is doing this, it's just happening, is the central realization, really, to sitting meditation to the whole of life. It's just happening. There are intentional acts, of course, but then they just happen, too, with intention. Everything that happens is a result of intention. Everything volitional is a result of intention. You can just let go of the moving, of feeling attention in different parts of your body and just feel the whole event in out, in, out.
Perhaps it's a helpful metaphor to say that we're, we all are intent, we're antennas. We hear things or sounds register. Sometimes we hear them. Sometimes we have a thought about them. Sometimes we don't. Buddha taught, and it's my experience, that every moment has a feeling tone of pleasant, not so pleasant, more pleasant, unpleasant. Usually we don't notice it unless it's remarkably strong. But as you sit, you might notice this is pleasant. It's really pleasant. Sometimes realize it's not so pleasant anymore. One way to think about the discipline of sitting meditation is that it cultivates the ability to have steadfastness through periods of pleasant and not so pleasant, which is really the kind of discipline of steadfastlessness that we'd like to have in our lives. Last week I brought my coffee cup that says, keep calm and carry on talked about how much that could be a watchword for a life. Things happen. You could also think of it as cultivating equanimity. Naming what's there and deciding just to know it's there and soothe the mind. Let's keep calm and carry on. I'll be quiet so that we can all do our individual practice of being with what's coming and going in the most alert and relaxed way that we can.
we always, at the end of the time that we sit together, um, leave some time for people to mention into our shared space people they may be thinking about extra these days because of some um, perhaps wonderful thing that happens in their lives right now or because something really difficult is happening. My friend Rachel is continuing her journey into dying um, of glioblastoma, as is John McCain. It's interesting to me always to think that they're both, I think about them both. Um, Mr. McCain is more famous than Rachel, but every in each case, family is around and taking care of them. And you don't know when it's going to happen. So what I wish for them is um, that their time be uh, as comfortable as it can be. What are you thinking about? Who are you thinking about? I'm thinking of Donald and uh, the Rothberg family today would have been Bernice uh, Rothberg's 94th birthday. And I used to uh, be one of her caregivers. Very, very fond memories. stages of dementia
I'm still teaching, and I just did a project with uh, eighth graders as a rite of passage, a self-reflective portrait in Frida Kahlo style. How great the show looks, and it's up at Toby's. And really, would love you all to go see their the artwork of the kids, and it will be at the graduation. And it's so rewarding. Teaching is great, and she is a great teacher. And so are you. Yesterday. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're welcome. I was wondering who, that, who you were. See, there was a reason I was going to say it. I was going to be quiet today. I was, I was really trying. This is the reason that uh, 
that I frequently say at this point or at the end of the class or when I'm talking about this gathering to other people, I say, well, people say, what do you do there? I say, well, in the beginning, the first hour, we get to see who's there and we meditate together. And the second hour, I try to teach or elaborate some point of Dharma. But then when I'm here, I often say, this last five minutes is really the most important time in the whole class because really that is the whole Dharma. Everybody here has got a life. Everybody here cares about other people who are in some part of their life, either in a moment of uh, 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 the 1,000 joys, 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes. Every once in a while there's something really celebratory happening with somebody. And for a lot, it's the, the stuff that happens to people. And always when we share and talk, I'm reminded of the enormous breadth of things that happen to people. Everything happens to, I was going to say everything happens to everybody, but in a certain sense, everything happens to everybody. We all share in it and hear about it. But people have particular manifestations of pain in their body or in their mind. And that's the story of being here in this life. And we, t- we teach it to each other when we share. I'm thinking about my friend who has this, or my mother has this, and my brother-in-law who has that. And we remind each other that everybody's got something, and that this life is very precious, and the moments of joy are very precious. And I think that the whole effect of that is, in, in me anyway, is to... Um, consolidated in me really the determination that uh, my own life not make it harder for other people, that I not behave in a way that causes suffering for myself or for other people. I think that that's the function of community. We share with each other. We teach each other. This is what life is about. It's, uh, when I heard the first noble truth about life is suffering, I was a relatively young woman and not in so much personal pain and not with that much experience of personal pain. It sounded like a glum evaluation. <laughs> but really, I've come to really recognize it doesn't mean every moment of life is painful for everyone. It doesn't mean that life isn't beautiful and remarkable and amazing and that I'm not glad for my life. I'm thrilled for it. And everybody else's. I don't know how it is on other solar systems, but this is what we have here, and it's amazing. And very hard, periodically, for everyone. And to not make it worse for anyone seems to be the only thing that really brings solace to the heart. We can live with the fact that people get early Alzheimer's and other people die of something else and other people die of something else and dreams don't come true because that's what it is to be human. But to not make it worse and to have that as an intention in life. May all the people that we mentioned be uh, sustained by the fact that people love them and care about them.
That was louder than I meant it to be. Over the week, as I always do when, when I'm going to be back here, feeling around for the glasses, uh, in the whole week I, I save little pieces of newspaper and things I come across and what I've read, uh, knowing that at the end of the week they're going to be a way for me to teach Dharma. And... Uh, uh, as I listen to you all sharing in those last five or ten minutes, I realize that there isn't so much reason to talk about, tell a story about once upon a time there was a person who happened here or once upon a time somebody else. I mean, I, the, the stories are wonderful. But just with us, we could tell in our stories, once upon a time this is what's happening right now to people in my family, people in my class, people in my community. How do we feel in this world at this time? At some point yesterday, when I was looking at all of my papers, I thought, what else? It says here, what I'll teach tomorrow is that happiness comes only from kindness and compassion. And I'll say that that comes from Thich Nhat Hanh. Just, and that I heard it from Greg, Greg Boyle in his new book, Barking to the Choir. And that says, I'll teach from this new book, Barking from the Choir, and from a piece of a newspaper, and from a piece of a newspaper, another newspaper that I couldn't find this morning when I saved it so carefully all day yesterday, and another book that I just read. Uh, I read these two books really in the last five days. I read um, this book, H-H-H-H, by Laurent Binet, B-I-N-E-T, Laurent Binet is a French writer. It won a tremendous prize in France. I hadn't heard of it ever. It's translated into English. Um, and it was sent to me by uh, my friend Lord Heike, who lives in Amsterdam, who read it in English. And uh, it came in the mail. And I read it. I started it last Saturday at noon. And I finished it uh, Monday morning. And I didn't stop reading because once you start, you, I found I couldn't stop. I'll tell it to you. It's a, it's a horrifying story, and it's a, it's. I thought I had read so many Holocaust stories that I couldn't yet be shaken by another one. That I've been to museums and read stories and uh, and visited Anne Frank and house and. Been to museums all over the place, and I I had relatives who lived through the 1940s in Poland, hiding out and survived. So I thought there would be nothing that could, anyway, was compelling. I'll tell you about it. Just I'll read you some of it. I'm going to tell you about. I'll tell you about this in a minute. I also saw a um, a YouTube video. So Roberta's here. Roberta, that that performer in that video, who 
Who is he? I'm not hip enough to know. Yeah, so I'm not hip enough to know who he is. It was. <laughs> anyway, I copied the, uh, the, 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 the refrain that he kept on singing. It's not, it's not, I'm not accustomed to that. What do you call that, rap or what? Reggae rap, okay. Um, some days in my tears I drown, but I don't let it get me down, is that phrase. That, is that why you sent it to me? Yeah. And I think that's the whole thing. Some days in my tears I drown, but I don't let it get me down. I, I was thinking about that last week when I brought that uh, cup that said, uh, keep calm and carry on. Greg Boyle talks about the literally hundreds of young men at whose funerals and burials he has presided, that he's been the priest who buried them because of fighting in barrios in, in the South Los Angeles area where his church, his parish is. been a parish church that's uh, a Jesuit, Father Boyle. And um, what was remarkable, I remember reading his first book, uh, Tattoos on the Heart, telling about his coming to that parish and uh, beginning to work there uh, at, with tremendous fighting in the street, gang violence going on at, at a really horrific rate where as little as someone wears the wrong colors on their jacket that, or says the wrong word or something or other causes gunfire to break out. Talk, there, there are instances in this book where he's describing a funeral of two young men who are brothers who get shot down in some gun battle and the church service with the two of them in coffins and their father getting up to talk about it. it so it's, it's horrendous. And what he did, it's not, it's not finished now. I, there's no reason to think that it's different now because the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the um, amount of poverty there, the not access to schools or education or parents who stay together. It's really a, an incredible amount of cultural push to join tr- gangs, which people do when they're 14 years old, if they make it till then. Stories about people who come through his uh, Homeboy Industries, which is the name of the organization that he started, that has, the, they, they have, they manufacture things. They mostly produce people who are ready to make a change in their life, ready to uh, go to, go into recovery and have a determination to make their lives different and often go into therapy with therapists that are part of that organization and against all odds manage to make it, manage to have families, manage to not get pulled back into the gang life. And they love him. And uh, when I read Tattoos in the Heart, yeah, I would read one after another. Father Boyle tells all these stories uh, one after another, anecdotal story, so so-and-so comes in. In this book yesterday, I read a story of a man who's now a young adult whose mother, when he was six years old, uh, who was a person he was living with, went to the door and said goodbye and went out and closed the door and left. 
and that he lived on the streets for himself for a couple of years, sustaining himself out of who knows what, and then finally got into foster care and grew up and had all kinds of terrible experiences in the foster care, but miraculously grew up and joined a gang and because a gang is the only people support. We have a family. And then finally got, came to Father Boyle's organization and is now okay with it. And the, the, the reading of conversations he has with these young men and women is so touching. Uh, he says, I do all right with them because I speak the language. Uh, with, and he means more than I speak Spanish. He also speaks the kind of uh, gang uh, uh, idiom. But I wanted particularly, oh, when I, I wanted to say this about the first book, what I got very strongly out of the first book, which I continue to get out of this, is people come to see him uh, and tell him the most terrible stories, uh, like this boy, about what's happened to them, or of things they've done to other people that they are now lamenting, or that they got caught about, or that they are now agonizing about, feeling a loss of. And what I got, without him saying, this is what happens to me, is he, he listens to them. He really listens to them. And what he manages to do is he manages to see that there's a whole person around this wound. And, and he loves them. He really loves them. Uh, I remember years ago reading some, I, I think I told you this sometime recently, someone said about Mother Teresa who had that mission where she took in dying people for their last days. Really, really, she ran a hospice for dying people who were in the most extraordinary uh, deteriorated situations of physical decay. And someone said, you know, how can you look at them? How come it's not like disgusting to you? And she said, you know, everyone I look at looks to me like Jesus. So you think, this is, this is really... This is really what it's supposed to be, that you're really supposed to be able to see around the person that every one of us, everybody, is a manifestation of life happening. The flowers that are growing in my house now that it's around my house now that it's spring are growing the way they are because they have the seeds that they do. You know, so it's not amazing that the dahlias are coming up where there were dahlias and that the iris are coming up where there were iris. Things that there are seeds that make people that are in certain circumstances and those that are in the right sun and that there's the right watering, they flourish and the ones that don't flourish. And that's what happens with people and plants and things. And to be able to see everything as a mysterious but lawful manifestation of the fact that life unfolds according to conditions. One of the lines from Buddhism generally not used in this context but it says things happen when the necessary and sufficient conditions have been met that things don't happen out of the blue that uh, well I'm going to read a little bit to you but I was so moved by people being able to say to him all kinds of things and he manages to hold in his vision well here I'll read you a couple of things he lives in uh, he lives in a housing around the, in the parish with other priests as priests do. You know. When I taught in Loyola High School in Los Angeles in the last 
in the late 70s, after Sunday morning mass, I'd grab a cup of coffee and sit in the living room on the second floor and read the LA Times. Peace, quiet, and feliz. It doesn't get better than that. One Sunday, I was sitting with my friend and Jesuit brother, Al Nauki. Both of us had our coffee and we were silently turning the pages of the paper when the doorbell started to ring repeatedly. Initially, Al and I hid behind our papers, waiting it out. The doorbell rarely rang, but when it did, it was almost always some homeless person. Finally, Al, the way better man, quietly put down the paper. There was no annoyed sighing, though who would blame him? I could just picture that annoyed sighing. Ugh. You know, how frequently do, <laughs> do I do that? Some ten, minutes later, and some ten minutes later, he returned, sat down, took a sip of coffee, and resumed his reading. After a few beats, I asked, without lowering the paper, well, well what, Al replied, not lowering his paper either. <laughs> Who was it, I said. From behind the sports section, he said, it was Jesus in his least recognizable form. <laughs> And that, this, this is really the whole story of this book. I read it it's since yesterday morning, really. There's another very important piece in this book. He's saying, um, a homily I've given in detention facilities... Um, is a reflection of the scene in which Jesus is hanging on the cross between two other people and promises one of them this day with me in paradise. There's a 17-year-old trainee straight out of probation camp named Fabian, trainee in his program, uh, who has already his share of adult concerns. He has a lady and a tiny son he chooses daily to occupy his own footsteps and steer clear of his past gang-banging pursuits. He remembers this homily and one day delivers it back to me, fully, largely intact. He'd been a few months in Homeboy and he stops in, plunks himself down in my office, telling me he has a paradise sighting. He's had a paradise. You'll be with me in paradise. Paradise sighting. Yesterday, he begins, I was taken on a ride by God to paradise. Wow, I say to him, I'm all ears. You had me a tooken. You had me a tooken. Well, I drove my lady in my tore-up bucket to drop off an assignment at her school. We fought the whole damn time. Pretty petty shit. We didn't even stop the whole time. She gets out drops off her assignment, gets back in the car, and we fight all the way home. Constant. Non-stop. Gatos y perros. Small stuff. Shit that don't matter. Then this noise comes from the hood, and smoke starts to pour out. I get off the freeway and pull into the shell station. My muffler dies as I pull in. I had to push it the whole rest of the way. I call the worker, and it took three hours for the tow truck to arrive. He pauses in his narrative long enough to smile 
with the tenderness of the memory. Then there was paradise, he says simply. He's lost me at that point. C.G., he says to me, for three hours we talked. We decided not to fight. We told each other how grateful we are to have each other in our lives. I mean, damn, where would we be if we didn't have each other? We just talked. The smile broadens and gets fixed there. Yeah, he says, it was paradise. And then he, Rick Boyle, goes on to say, paradise is not a place that awaits our arrival, but a present we can arrive at. A place, in fact, we are already in. When we expect that moment, we grow more confident that we will be taken, taken on a ride to see it. How many chances a day are we given to recognize this? an opportunity to practice sacred presence, smack dab right in front of our eyes. We miss so much now because we are running to the next. I put a placeholder for here and I wrote on it, um, be here now. Be here now is Ramdas's line, you know, be here now. And you think when you first hear it, where else could I be? But most of the time we're not here. We're like in the future or in the past. We're in the future we're either anticipating with joy or with worry or with angst. And we're in the past, we're recriminating or we're trying to relive a memory. But when we're here, in the two minutes that you talk to a person in the beginning, you're really there. You have no time. It's just that person and you. And you're really probably paying attention to them because now's your chance. And then it wakes you all up because you become alive when you pay pay attention right now. And how much we don't do it. I've been thinking a lot about that, that particularly... um, That particularly is a point that I'll think about and, and relive a lot of times. The the, the the corollary to that story is I'm thinking of um, a friend of mine who's a Zen teacher who says from uh, who's been married to a Zen teacher for a very long time. She said we get along great, and every once in a while, uh, we don't, and we're and and all of a sudden we we no, we notice it, and we each of us say, wait a minute. I'm in a realm. The other one says, yes, I'm in a realm too. Meaning we've wandered into a hell realm. You know, that we forgot to be here. We've wandered off into a realm. We've started to say that a little bit at home now because I like that so much because that's not the real me. The real me loves this person and the person loves me back. Everyone says, and when we, when we are in touch with that, we're good. And when we wander into a realm, you can really wander into a, well, a realm when your mind is full of who knows what. Talking about it another point, I just noticed I under-highlighted this particular phrase. So what we do at Homeboy's Industry is we try to foster an irresistible culture of tenderness. People are not accusatory. Uh, they don't admonish there's a there's a lovely uh, section in the um, 
Vinaya in the in the Buddha's uh, in the Buddha's code of rules for monks, and one of them is uh, it starts before admonishing anyone. One should reflect thus, and then it's got five things to reflect on before you admonish. And when I teach that, people say, say "Well, you know, by the time you finish doing all those reflections, you know, you, you could never get around to admonishing." But that's actually the point of it—that you could point out to people without admonishing. You know, that doesn't have to be a cut down or a critique. You know, let me show you another way to do that that might work out better. You know, that's not an admonish. When I celebrate, <laughs> so and so, they said you have to, you have to, you have to not make people wrong, but you have to tell them what's right. This is an important aspect in recovery. I'm sure you know that. Beaver, a heroin addict, fresh out of detox, and now back on the streets, thinks he needs everything else but rehab. Besides, he says, "I got the rabbit in me." He says, "I'm going to run." I can't do it. Then he shifts the subject. You know what I need? I need to get my GED. He pauses. Then he says, what's GED stand for anyway? I write it out on a piece of paper. Then on another slip of paper, I write G-Y-A-I-R. I hand it to him. He studies the letters. He says, what's that stand for? I said, get your ass into rehab. <laughs> so that, that, that's what it stands for. But it's really compelling. There's one more thing that I wanted to read to you. Where is it? Um, he says, I really can't... He says, I really can't... I have to find this. is very important. I won't do it as well as he did. point of it is he said you know I can't really feel I try to feel what it is for these people or they it starts by saying I've never I've never killed a person and I can't imagine doing that but I think it's because three things were true about me and I think I underlined it this morning and I think I can't find it but in essence he said it's mostly luck I was born into a family that was well-behaved and, and, and we had enough. And I never saw this kind of stuff happen and no, no terrible traumas ever happened to me. And uh, I fell in love with goodness because of my, uh, the religious sensitivity of my family. I'm not sure those are the three things. I'll find them by next week. He says, so I really can't know what it's like for these people. But I try as hard as I can to be able to, and I'm, I'm, I think it's that, you know, who can know what we know about other people, but when you hear his, his interchanges with these people, uh, the people he meets, all of them, is unfailingly seeing around the, per, the deed of that person, that, that, that there's an inherent goodness that if things had been different, if the soil had been different, if the sun had shone, if it had been watered, if it, someone had looked after it and nourished it, it would be a human being and it would be different from how it is. 
And to be able to see that, which is not to say to to not have anything, um, to not have any values or any opinions, like get your ass into rehab. That's a that's an opinion, but it can be delivered without uh, without anger, without ma- making a person feel bad about themselves. So. This is a one-minute thing. I want to tell you about this book. I had two pieces of the newspaper that I was going to bring. The one of them that I didn't misplace is um, uh, out of yesterday's newspaper also of a, a family uh, a family of an advertisement with a, a multiracial family. So he is a, uh, an African-American woman with... He might be Latino, he might be Caucasian, I'm not sure. Uh, not sure. Uh, but anyway, talking about there are five times as many ads uh, now than a couple of years ago in public media uh, with uh, biracial couples, with uh, two women or two men doing something together. I, I actually think the effect of the whole culture around, and uh, they, I say, oh, I know what was important, the names of the companies that are doing this. J.P. Morgan, Humira, State Farm, uh, Smile Direct Club, Coors Light, Macy's, Tide, and Cadillac. All are taking those. Those are things that people see in football games or basketball games. How many people are going to watch the game tonight? <laughs> it's a very, it's a very, it's very interesting. Uh, I sent it. I sent an email to my friend in Cincinnati the other uh, the other day after the second game, and I said, "Really, I'm sorry about it." <laughs> That she sent back, she said, no, no, the word in Cincinnati, how we're talking about it, is that this is a playoff, um, it's a playoff between the best player in the league and the best versus the best team in the league. So that was an interesting thing to say, but there's always a way to frame it, you know. But sometimes and we look forward to it all day, we plan out when we we're going to eat so we can see it. And uh, we talk to each other about, it's a really interesting thing that Politics is absolutely terrible and on fire and alarming and everything else. And the, the uh, uh, climate change is going on and everything else is going on. And in the same mind that's concerned about that, we're going to watch the basketball game. Like, it matters, you know? That, like, like the mind is, a, is an amazing kind of a thing. It can be, like, interested in the basketball game and how the players look after the game and how nice it is that they all pat each other on the back. And it is, isn't it? And uh, everybody talks about, was that actually a wrong call about that Error and they shouldn't have. They should have actually lost the second game. Everybody is talking about that, so. and climate change and everything else. That we have all these things in the mind. Did it ever occur to you that the mind is amazing? The other piece of newspaper that I was going to bring, thinking of one's own mind changing. 
uh, I read out this article in its entirety yesterday, and it impressed me. Probably it talked about the death of a woman who's 81 years old, who was born in New York uh, five days before I was. Born in Brooklyn five days before I was in a part of Brooklyn not far from where I lived. We might have gone to the same high school. Uh, and there's a picture of her. It looks like me, an 81-year-old woman, with her wife stand next to her in the picture. But there's a whole page about her because she and her wife made history in the LGBTQ um, history in the last 40 years. Uh, she, here she is in Sheepshead Bay in Brooklyn f- 60 years ago. She married a year or two after I did. She married a man as, and her current wife married a man and one of them had two children, the other one had three children, uh, one of those families, they were friends with each other. They met each other. They knew each other socially. Uh, one of those families lived in Israel for a number of years and then came back, and they all met again. And these two women, when they met again, fell in love with each other and felt like it was important for them to marry each other or to be with each other because in those days they couldn't marry each other. And it doesn't talk so much about... Uh, the difficulties in their family with that happening. But there's one line later at the end of this whole remarkable story about them being leading um, um, forces in uh, equal partner rights. You can visit your partner in the hospital. You can uh, sign a release agreement. You can leave them whatever you want in your will. All of the things that they pushed before even it was all right to marry each other and finally they they could marry each other which i really rejoice that they didn't from the from the figuring i think it was 1973 or something when they did this in 1973 i'm five i'm five days older than one of them i was a, a young woman uh, 40ish something like that uh, in 76, I was 40, so late 30s. So they were doing something which was really far out, and I didn't, I was not aware of it at the time. Um, I was just reflecting on it yesterday because of all, of, there's, a, there's a bill that's recently gone through Congress that has their name on it because they authored it or pushed it through. And I was so proud of them for doing what they did and for being able to stand up for what they felt was their authentic life. And apparently, I guess, the the rest of their families... One of them said one line in the the obituary. It said that this woman who died said, you know, no amount of anything could... uh, balance the uh, the distress I brought to my family. So that was the only thing that says about that. But I was thinking, you know, if I had heard about this in when it was happening, I might not have rejoiced so much in them leaving their family. I might have, in a 37-year-old mind, thought to myself, also in a arrogant, I wouldn't leave my family. How do I know? How do I, you know, I don't know. 
It didn't happen to me, it happened to them. And it must have taken extraordinary determination and clarity of vision for them to do it. And I don't know how much it hurt over the years, how much their children had to deal with that in a world that was not so open to how we are now about deciding who you're going to love and live with. But in the meantime, the world changed and they had a life together and they did a lot of very good work for the, the a greater community with all the legislative LGBT LGBTQ community. So who's to know? But my, I, you know, I really looked at them and I thought, who's to know? Another girl at Sheepshead Bay High School. Look at that. Look at her life. Good for her. She did it. I was really proud of her. And I thought so. That 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 the culture in the time that's passed has changed my mind. So I re- I read this yesterday with a different mind than I would have read it in 1973 had it been in the newspaper. So that's it's, it links to this because I think things are changing. If there's five times as many ads on regular TV stations about all kinds of people getting in and out of bed with all kinds of other people, having breakfast with all kinds of other people, it's it's you know in 20 years it won't be a big deal. One of the commentators I heard on some show yesterday or the day before said, uh, apropos of uh, uh, the, the, the secret meaning of make America great again is make America white again, but it's not going to happen. And by 1934 or something, there's some date where the demographics will have shifted so much that... Um, I know it was somebody talking about uh, the uh, recent politics as a reflection of a rise up of dismay of that people have about uh, uh, a person of color being the president of the United States, and this commentator was saying, you know, thirty years from now, it's likely that the president of the United States that she will be a person of color. <laughs> You know, and it gave me a lot of hope, that particular comment, because somebody is thinking about it's going to be 2034, that we'll make it. You know, that more and more, I sent away for that book by uh, Fallows, Fallow. James Fallow didn't come yet, but this came and that came. Maybe I didn't press send on that. It should have come. <laughs> I will have read it by next time. Because I really, I think that that's where I want to put my mind now. I want to put it on people who actually see the big picture of things are going to change and people are inherently good. I don't want to run out of time. I want to tell you why I didn't put down this book for two and a half days. Laurent Binet did, uh, in, in, as many, many people have done exhaustive studies of all the events of the Second World War and what led up to it. The HHHH are the four first letters of, a four, of four words that were a phrase that in German mean Himmler's brain is named Heydrich. There was a man named Rudolf Reinhard Heydrich who 
was one of the chief organizers. He wasn't Himmler, but he was like a major organizer of the uh, program of the Reich in, in um, Czechoslovakia when uh, uh, Germany invaded uh, Czechoslovakia. And he was installed there to uh, Germanize and get rid of, among his many duties, was to get rid of all the undesirables, which included really all the Jews. I mean, mostly all the Jews, all the um, union leaders, all... um, all disabled people, all gay people, gypsies, gypsies Romani, yeah, Romani. Uh, and he did that with a vigor that it is breathtaking to read about. It's unbearable. Anyway, at the, the, this is true. I'll read you what it says on the back because it's really true. This is about Operation Anthropoid that happened in Prague in 1942. Two Czechoslovakian parachutists who are in England are sent on a daring mission by London to assassinate Reinhard Heydrich, chief of Nazi secret services. His boss is Heinrich Himmler, but everyone everyone in the SS says Himmler's brain is called Heydrich which in German spells out that all the characters in this book are real. All the events depicted are true. But alongside the nerve-shredding preparations for the attack runs another story. When you are a novelist writing about real people, how do you resist the temptation to make things up? So every, everything... Because, you know, you, these things did happen to real people. Uh... Everybody and all the people who have write, uh, written endorsements for it said, blew me away, this is fabulous. Uh, the part I want to read to you, the part that is one of the things that's amazing, I won't tell you whether they succeed or not, but it's the story of these two men who parachute into Czechoslovakia and uh, not immediately, because it takes a long time to set it all up, are going to make an attempt to kill, to assassinate this chief person. So uh, uh, I'll tell you that the attempt comes to pass. I won't tell you how it works out for them or for anybody else. Um, But you can't put the book down once you start. And what's interesting about it is that um, it tells a story, unlike usually when you read a thriller, how the author feels when she or he is writing it is not included. This person has written himself into the story all along. How he feels when he discovers this. And he mentions all the the, uh, uh, the sources that he uses to to write the book, which are vast. Books and books and books and movies. You can look it up on the internet. Uh, I have, I'm still going through stuff to look up about it. Uh, and he's talking about what happens to him as he reads this stuff and then writes it. And you don't know everything. You know that so-and-so met so-and-so in such a place, but whether they said hello or whether I hope I'll see you tomorrow or whether they said, you know, uh, 
whatever. You have to make up dialogue every once in a while. Uh, and how much to put in and how much not to put in. So he puts himself in quite a lot. And then at one point in the middle, he says, I'm fighting a losing battle with all my material that I'm doing and trying to render it. I'm fighting a losing battle. I can't tell the story the way it should be told. This whole hodgepodge of characters, events, dates, and I love this phrase, the infinite branching of cause and effect. And these people, these real people who actually existed, I'm barely able to mention a tiny fragment of their lives, their actions, their thoughts. I keep banging my head against the wall of history. I look up and see growing all over it, even higher and denser like creeping ivy, the unmappable pattern of causality. I just so am intrigued by that frame, the unmappable pattern of causality. You just don't know. We make plans all the time. Down the street from where one of my daughters lives, a new family moved in a year or two ago, and they'd moved from the Midwest, and the uh, one of the parents had just gotten a big raise and a, a promotion to a larger part of that company. They moved in down the street. They moved their children there. It was the beginning of a whole flowering of this person's career. One of their school-age children uh, riding to school on her bicycle the next day was hit by a truck and killed. So you don't know where it's... And all the rejoicing that must have happened, he got this great job, and they moved, and they came, and they successfully made it here from Oklahoma. And you don't know when you cross the street. You don't know anything about anything. So for it, for an attempt for an assassination to happen, there has to be so much planning that everybody should be at the right place at the right time at, to happen. And those stars have to really line up, you know, everything, because the taxi could be late, or that this could happen, or that that could happen. I so was caught by that phrase, the unmappable pattern of causality. And as he goes back and he finds one source, and then he goes back and he chases that source to where that came from. For And you come to get at the end to realize that everything happens. Oh, good. I see I'm going to end more or less where I want it to end. Not nearly with telling you everything on my page, but really I want to get from this to one other important thing. That when you realize, for these, they do make the attempt. And something does happen as a result of that. But you read the book like this until you get there. But that idea of the whole hodgepodge of infinite branching of cause and effect, that you can't say that this happened, can't say that that I am here because my parents met each other and made a child. Their parents have to have met each other, and their parents, and their parents, and their parents, and their parents, and my and and, and I'm I always put in Marco Polo is one part of my karma because Marco, if Marco Polo had not opened a trade route to the to the uh, west or the east, 
then the economics of Europe would have been different. If the economics of Europe would have been different, maybe my four grandparents who came from different places wouldn't have come. And so they have to have the economics of Europe being such that the Jews in Eastern Europe, for various reasons, could not continue to live there and had to come to the United States where... I forgot to say in our prayers the thousands, it looks like, children who are being held in detention centers near the Mexican border, which is intolerable to think about. Intolerable to think about. And that's happening. And where are people doing something about it? But something will happen. It has to be something that will so outrage. It's unthinkable. I, I, I watched that reporting. I, the, the reason I thought of it now is I think if my four grandparents came. They, came. they could come in those days. They could come and they could get a free education as my father did. Nobody read. My four grandparents were all impoverished and uneducated and illiterate. My father got to go all the way through grade school and high school and teacher's college, got a master's degree in education, all for free in the city of New York, and went on to be an administrator in New York City high schools. Give me your tired and weary, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Where we, we have huddled masses in detention centers near the Texas border. How can we have this? It's like an impossible thing to think about. And what happened, what happened, and what happened to get here? Everything happened. And I am here because of everything that happened before me. And everything that I do makes a difference. One of the really very pleasant, thrilling moments of yes, of last evening is I got a, uh, a... I heard my phone go click, and I turned it... I looked through my... Uh, text that had just come. The picture of my youngest grandchild who was uh, 18 years old last two months in March. 18 years old in March coming out of the polling place with her little sign, I voted. I have, I, uh, she has spent all, she's gone with her mother to the polls every year and I think, and you know, it's not just from me, but I, I vote in every single election and I went with my mother to the polling place and stood in the polling booth and watched her vote from when I was young. She was, past, she was not a well woman, but no matter what, she went to, got to the polling place. And I have never missed a vote. And my, my, those four people came because they thought this was a free country and they could vote and that they wouldn't be imperiled because they were poor or uneducated. But things happen. I think there will be a critical point. I think there is a critical point happening. There is, actually. I noticed this morning that uh, the Koch brothers are now running millions of dollars of ads about the value of free trade and the importance of not having punitive tariffs on our friends. There's going to be a necessary and sufficient condition be strange if it was the Koch brothers' mother, money that was doing it and not the Dalai Lama's sagacity. But hey, what I wanted to read to you, we'll, 
I don't know. I won't be back next week. Heidi will be here. And then I think Donald will be back. About every moment of our life, I am me in this moment because of every single thing that's happened to me ever and everything that's happened to the whole world ever because otherwise I wouldn't be here to begin with. But in this moment, I have intentionality in this moment. And so do all of us. We can do this moment. My friend Tamara Engel was dying, really. I'm talking to her hours before she doesn't she was gone. It's interrupted. Someone's holding the phone for her at the in the hospice where she's in a bed about to die. And uh I'm encouraging her to I wish this was over. It will be soon, dear, it's okay. She said, oh, wait a minute, I have to thank the nurses. They're fixing my, my blankets around my feet. Thank you so much. You're, you've been so good. You've made my time here so comfortable. You can't believe, Sylvia, the nurses here. They're so kind. She is choosing in her final moments to celebrate the kindness of the people around her. You know, I'd like to do that. That when I was present for that story, it made an indelible mark in my mind. If I can pull it off, I'd like to do that. So that people will say that about me. It will be a much better thing than about how sage or how this or how that. But if I manage to do that, because that would mean that I had managed to stay alive until the last moment of my life. Because we have, we have that choice anytime. This is Alan Liu, my friend, who was the rabbi of uh, uh, Congregation Beth Sholem in San Francisco until he died. Every moment of my life I am inescapably hammered into place by everything that has ever happened since the creation of the universe. And every moment I am free to act in a way that will alter the course of that great flow of being forever. What I do, what you do right now is a piece of the karma of the future. In a, it, karma really means action. It doesn't mean the, the the incorrect definition of karma is uh, you got what you deserve. Da da da. It's not that karma. Literally in, in Sanskrit means action. When people are talking about you got you what you deserve, it's the fruits of your action. That's from Alan Liu from a book called um, This. Uh, I think it means this life. This is real and you are absolutely unprepared. Uh, and he, he wrote it specifically about the arc of the year that happens from uh, uh, the beginning, middle of July, from a, a certain uh, period in the yearly cycle of Torah readings and continues until a week past uh, Yom Kippur, about it being a period in the world, in the in the northern hemisphere, a time of gathering in crops and reflecting and making um, uh, intentions for the new year and repenting for or fixing up what you didn't fix. Actually, uh, one of the things that I, th- I think I'll invite, I can't think why I shouldn't invite you to come, uh, congregation... Uh, 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 Road of Shalom on North San Pedro Road, of which I am a member, so I could remember that. 
Rota Shalom is having a seven-week preparation for uh, of reflections, uh, meditation and reflections on beginning a new year that's going to start on the 23rd of July, uh, every Monday morning from 10 to 12. It'll be much like this, two hours of meditation instruction and much more... Uh, and not Buddha stories so much as uh, scripture stories, but making the same sense. And uh, Mark comes to the... Are you coming to the retreat this summer? Huh? Mark comes to the retreat that I do every summer at uh, Santa Sabina in August. That's uh, a retreat, just like a mindfulness retreat here except we do it in the idiom of scripture rather than in the idiom of the Buddha because suffering is ubiquitous and uh, the truth of kindness and compassion being the only remedies is a universal truth, not a parochial truth. So you can come to the road F if you want to, if you happen to not be doing things on Monday mornings from 10 to 12. And if you want to, let me know about it. If you want to, Phone them and get on a list so that they'll send you emails about it. It's the congregation Rodef Shalom. It's on. Hmm? Rodef Shalom. The phone number is 479 419 3441. I happen to know that. <laughs> Huh? No. <laughs> Probably millions of people have my social security number. All those people who read all, you know. I have to have enough trust that they're not interested in my social security number. Sorry, when is it starting? July? It'll start on Monday, July 23rd. And it will, it, actually, if you sign up, you, you'll be invited to come on Friday night before it, which will be an introduction to it also. And it's all free, and you can just come. You can not come. You don't have to come for all of it. It's like Wednesday mornings here. And really, I have uh, I, I, I wanted to teach there because I like teaching. And I'm not traveling anymore, so uh, I have a lot of more time available to teach locally. So, And I'll miss you for the next couple of weeks, but I'll be back. Oh, I'm glad I remembered to tell you about that. Was there something else I was supposed to tell you? No. Hmm? Oh, my retreat, it's full. It's full. Um, there is a retreat in the end of uh, June. It's a funny time for retreat. It's from Monday morning at 9 o'clock until Wednesday at 3 o'clock. It's wedged in. <laughs> but it filled up right away, so... Maybe people like that short. It's The promise for that retreat is that it's going to be brief, but it's going to be intense. So people apparently like that brief and intense. And it's being taught by John Martin and myself and Condé Mason. So it'll be great. Huh? What date that June 25th. June 25th. Thank you very much. Are you coming? Yes. Thank you. As, as in my, but for some reason it's not in my calendar. Now I'm confused. 
Huh? Well, uh, it, it ends at three uh, on that afternoon. Will you give me a ride to San Francisco at three o'clock that afternoon? I have opera. I have uh, I have uh, uh, the operas that night. <laughs> I'll tell you, <laughs> and if it's not convenient, I'll find somebody else. Oh, that's not a way to end because. Uh, <laughs> well, you're a very good driver. I know that. If I'm gonna, <laughs> did you know that that Jeff does long distance driving for retired? Retired, yay! Yeah, sorry about the back injury though, but but yeah, that's pain and well. Okay, we'll leave it at that. May all beings be peaceful and happy, and come to the end of suffering. Leave the chairs. Leave the chairs where they are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.